welcome to stat i'm telling you all medical true crime stories and it gets bizarre karen wickiam yeah she used to work in er and now she's sharing the knowledge so let's get involved hey funny and scary at the same time medical mysteries all facts she ain't lying <laughs> so tune in the stat if you dare because crazy things can happen anytime anywhere <laughs> yeah hello 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 everybody out there in podcast land this is stat shocking traumas and treatments and I'm your host, Karen Wickiam, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I'm not alone. Hello, everybody. It's yeah, Mary. I have the beautiful Miss Mary here with me today. And I, she's my moral support person um, here to help me get through this last bit of Henry Cotton. Dr. Henry Cotton. I mean, I, it sounds like, I think I complain after, <laughs> to every one of these uh, episodes I do with crazy doctors and nurses and be like, if I'm complaining, why am I doing it? Because I think it needs to be covered and I need to stop being a, a baby and suck it up a little bit, but they make me so mad. Well, I can see why you would feel that way. I mean, you know, doctors are supposed to do no harm. Their whole Hippocratic Oath is about, you know, helping the patient, not harming. And some of these people just use their patients for their egos. So that's something you're not fond of, I know. No, I mean, they've chosen people to be their their tool, their stepping stone for success. I mean... I guess many, many, many professions involve people, if not most of them. But in this case, I mean, these are innocent patients that are ill, that these guys are just like, that they're irrelevant to what they're trying to gain. So, uh, yeah, well, now that I'm at that point, why don't we just get started and I'll stop my, my bitching and moaning. Henry Cotton Part 2, here we go. I mean, we last left off just before he was going to go to a conference in Great Britain. And so this is where he is right now. He was invited to address the Medico-Psychological Association of Great Britain and Ireland. That's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. um, about his breakthroughs in the treatment of focal sepsis to cure mental illness. Now, the person behind this invitation was an evil doctor, Thomas Chivers Graves, the superintendent of Arubery Hill and Hollymore Mental Hospitals in Birmingham, England. Graves was an ambitious psycho like Cotton. In fact, they were practically the same person. He, like Cotton, wanted to make a splash in the psychiatry world at any cost. And he craved attention in power. And also like Cotton, he was against psychoanalysis. Cotton and Graves enabled each other. Both believed in focal sepsis and surgical psychiatry, and both were aggressive in their approach. They needed each other to boost their position. So Cotton gave his presentation at the London Conference on July 1923, and he put on a grand display, charts and slides and photographs and of radiographs and pictures of decaying teeth and diseased intestines, who wowed the crowd of prestigious doctors and politicians, which is kind of scary. You know, you think all these smart men, you know, can be wowed by pictures and slides and considering what he's talking about. Anyway, he endeared himself to the British doctors by complimenting their British founders of focal infection, like Joseph Lister. And Lister really was a an amazing human being because he was the one that said, hey, we need to wash hands and um, sterilize 
instruments when we're, t- you know, taking care of people. Because if you were ha- having a baby and you went to the hospital, your chances of dying were huge. Because doctors would literally go from mother to mother without washing their hands or changing their aprons or jackets or anything like that. Hey, I just wondered, is that where Listerine comes from? Probably. I would think so. Let's look into that. I'll have to look that up. Okay. Um, and they, he used carbolic. That was the same spell, spelling, right? Like yeah. Like Lister? So yeah. he was like the father of. Beating Brad bad breath. <laughs> no, I was going to say like anti- like antiseptic technique. Yeah, well, it makes sense. Yeah, right? let's look into it. Um, so he used carbolic acid and uh, it sounds scary, doesn't it? Sounds like it would like melt. But uh, yeah, he, that's what his he came up with was the use of carbolic acid to beat um, infection. Uh, he, he changed a lot of lives and saved a lot of lives with something that seems so simple to us nowadays, but uh, really really uh was especially now wash your hands wash your hands yeah don't touch your face wash your hands wear a mask (laughs) oh mary (laughs) anyway he pushed his theory of the benefits of curing mental illness by cutting until cured he introduced the concept of focal infection starting in the teeth and infecting the sinuses tonsils stomachs gallbladders colons cervixes and seminal vesicles all of which leach into the lymphatic system and bloodstream so all except the last two may need excision for a cure. So this was Lister? He was like No, 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 no. Oh, okay. He was he was complimenting the the British doctors by saying, You're so far advanced, yeah, you know, um, psychoanalysis and that is a bunch of crap and you know, look, the, jo- Joseph Lister came from you guys. He he gets focal infection and all that kind of stuff, right? So he buttered them up and then this is what he started to present. Okay. Oh, kiss their ass and then yeah, cutting until cured. Um, oh God, that wasn't was that his tagline? Cutting until <laughs> cured. That's the one I gave. Doctor Henry Cotton, cutting till cured. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, that's one I I gave him. Um, so when you think about it, death does cure mental illness, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, I would hope so. <laughs> I don't even want to think about that. Moving forward. Moving forward in the presentation, he said that 85% of his cases were cured. And then he insulted all other psychiatrists that did not practice surgical psychiatry and absolutely lost it on psycho, um, psychoanalysts. Like, from what I read in, in, in that, he literally went on a complete tear about them. Was it just like, uh, you know, I don't really like them. It was like, they're a bunch of the the the. So, you know, he goes from like smoke and mirrors to professionally you know, presenting this case to like having a mental breakdown himself um, over psychoanalysis. What does that say? Hmm, We should ask, we should refer to Freud. Anyway, he may have alienated a few psychiatrists, but that was insignificant because he impressed almost all of the rest of the doctors at the conference. He summed up mental illness as being nothing more than a symptom of focal sepsis. He justified the grossly high death rate of one third as they were terminally and mentally ill already, and they were all going to die anyway. Some very prominent doctors supported him, and the conference was a success for Cotton and his treatment. But what he loved the most was how he was honored at the annual dinner, and many very important doctors and politicians lavished great praise on him, and he just ate it up like any, you know, arrogant narcissist would. One of the results of this conference is that Graves pushed for every psych hospital, so going back to Graves, that invited him to the conference right um the equal to cotton now he was pressing that every practice in england 
uh, move forward to fight focal or sorry fight mental illness with um, by getting rid of focal infection, just like Cotton. Cotton returned to America with a strut in his step, more arrogant, narcissistic, and dangerously determined than ever before. Cotton's few critics hit the nail on the head as to what they saw going on. And so I'm going to give you a quote from one of the doctors at that time that were against all this terribleness. <laughs> That's really professional. Terribleness. Here's a quote from Dr. C.K. Mills. We seem to be passing through another of the periods of fad and fallacy, which so often has misled the profession and the public. If the craze for violent removal goes on, it will come to pass that we will have a gutless, glandless, toothless, and I'm not sure that we may not have, thanks to false psychology and surgery, a witless race. End of quote. Well, that's quite a statement. Yeah. And for the people that were um, victims of cotton, that's not far from the truth. So Cotton just ignored all his criticism and pushed it forward. Like he literally did not care. He just went, oh, next. You know, most people would be like, how dare they and and have something to rebut. No, he didn't care. Removing teeth and tonsils didn't seem to be enough. Cotton started his attack on other parts of the body, namely the bowel. And, you know, maybe we can look into it, but he was obsessed not just with teeth, but he was obsessed with removing bowel. There's probably some Freudian stuff in there as well. Maybe that's why he didn't like psychoanalysis because he would have been a perfect textbook case for treatment. Psycho killer. Guess que say. Here we go. In fact, in time, he became obsessed with surgeries and the removal of parts of the bowel, which in time led to hundreds of deaths, if not close to like thousands of deaths because we'll never truly know how many people died because he... Um, falsified his stats. Um, His goal was to eliminate fecal poisoning. His treatments, well, one of them was the Lane procedure, which released adhesions that caused blockage. And then there was, I have a hard time saying this word, membranotomy, um, which was the removal of the membrane around the colon. If you can think about taking the casing off a sausage. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be about it. Yeah. And then the removal of the colon, the large bowel. So funny enough that 84% of the membranotomies were done by, were female and 78% of the colectomies were also female. So a large number of females were having these terrible uh, surgeries done unto them. So was he, you know, choosing, was there some, I guess you could analyze, psychoanalyze that with Freud, was he punishing women in some way or was there more women in mental institutions and stuff at that time well it didn't take much to get admitted to a hospital in those days like for women you just had to piss your husband off really right she's hysterical yeah like if she this if you had a a, where hysterectomy comes from right yeah yeah if you were um or hister that's where hister comes from meaning uterus right right anyway um angry uterus yeah (laughs) angry wandering wandering uterus uterus. take it out yeah so you know if you were you talked back to your husband or you know like to smoke and he didn't want you to or different things like that i mean there's a whole list back in the day i'll i'll post and i think it might have been posted on the facebook page before where it's the most ridiculous reasons to be right admitted to the hospital (laughs) i remember you reading some of them to me and i was like what yeah it just it's it's funny but not because it's funny to us now, but could you imagine then? Like, that's all it took for you to, to get admitted to the hospital. 
Anyway, um, so as scary as that was, he now started to move in on children. That is messed up. Yeah. Um, so children aren't even developed. Their brains haven't finished developing. He didn't give a shit. He just wanted to, he wanted to be, have, uh, justify operating on everybody. So he was moving in on, uh, school age children and, um, juvenile detention centers. He had enthusiastic support from Commissioner Lewis, whose power extended to the Department of Institutions and Agencies, which included state prisons and juvenile reformatories. So he did go after, uh, there was a reformatory called James Reformatory for Boys, and there was a state home for girls and also the state prison. So he started to go after uh, those people as well, those kids. Um, so he identified 274 boys and girls needing treatment and early intervention. He even wrote a book called The Defective Delinquent and Insane. I just, defective. Yeah. I hate these words. Mm. Anyway, um, Very archaic, of course, we wouldn't use, you know, people talk about being politically correct now and stuff, but my God. Yeah. Like, um, Some like, of the um, terms they use back like then. invalid, meaning invalid, you know, and, and different things like that. So, yeah. So he started to, uh, go move on to, um, abnormal school children quote, the younger generation, most of the children have had their tonsils removed. The defective children have not had their tonsils removed. End of quote. Uh, so get, you know, far sweeping generalizations. And then, of course, he had to move on to the GI system of these kids. Um, so, quote, over 50% of our mental cases with pronounced psychosis show disturbance in the colon. And this percentage would also apply to the defective and delinquent cases. We have found that this condition in children as young as three and a half years old and have operated on many cases from the ages of seven to 15 years of age. Yeah. I don't even know what to say to that. So, you know, get him early, fix him up. It's just, he's, he's just a, a psycho, a psychopath. So well, surgeons are somewhere in the top 10 of that list. <laughs> yeah, they are. Not um, doctors, surgeons. Surgeons. Yeah. I'm going to give two case studies here. One of a six year old and an eight year old that he did surgery on. So chronic constipation was associated with a variety of antisocial activities, uncontrollable rage, destructive actions, moody, sulky, and depressed and even suicidal behavior. That was a quote from him. Um, one of these case studies was a child who made no effort to learn and could not be made to obey. The other child tried to shoot his father with an air gun. Um, both had surgery on their colons, following which the six-year-old acted in a normal manner and showed no peculiar conduct and attended school regularly. Um, and he had no difficulty learning. Now, the eight-year-old displayed temper, appetite, and general behavior like that of a normal child. Come on! Did they have colostomy bags back then? I don't know. They Well, they had colectomies. They, they removed the large bowel, and they just went from small bowel to uh, rectum, basically, which means that it's just pure liquid. I, I don't know. I, I can't say. I wasn't there. I don't know what they did, but um, that could have just been a resection as well, just moving out a part of the large bowel, not the entire large bowel. But right. come on, you're operating on six and eight-year-olds whose behavior is, you know, let's just admit it. From the age of two to four or two to three, drunken, like toddlers look like drunken old, like bums. <laughs> 
right? They're belligerent. They stumble all over the place. They fall down and get back up again. They're just like, that's a, that's a two-year-old. And then from probably four or five to like um, eight or nine, they're just, well, I, I think they're probably technically insane because they do the craziest stuff, right? And of course, this is all tongue in cheek, but uh, you know, a lot of that is probably just normal behavior. Well, I mean, kids are exploring and learning and, you know, like. And regardless, they didn't need surgeries on their surgery period. Um, So uh, continued, Um, he felt that if these children were left untreated, they would become psychotic and their future would be ruined and they would be a drain on society. So basically he could justify operating on anyone, young and old alike. If they were sick, they needed it. And if they were well, they needed it for prevention. Like he, as far as he was concerned, every single person in the world was a target, of course, except him or anyone that agreed with them. I want to talk about a doctor who had a great impact on Cotton's life. Actually, it could have been a great impact on Cotton's career had he not been able to, uh, had he not been a bully and a psychopath. Regardless, I'm going to tell a little story about Dr. Phyllis Greenacre because I think she is really cool and I'm just going to give a little bit of background on her because of this and um, because I think she does play a big role in what happens next. You could, I could do probably an episode or two just on her. Yeah, she's pretty cool. Far ahead of her time, it seems. Oh yeah. So as you can imagine, for a woman, becoming a doctor in the late 1800s, early 1900s was an immense feat. Men didn't want women in the medical in medical schools. They would sully the world of medicine. Um, their jobs and duties were in the home, catering to their husbands and children and tending to the home. But it's okay for them to be nurses, of course. Well, nurses there would, you know, nurses were just glorified housewives anyway, right? Hmm. Dr. Greenacre came from a respected family and all outward appearances pointed to a successful and loving family and she had six siblings. But this was far from the truth. Her father was a womanizer with a mistress or two on the side and a child with one of them whom he supported and they lived in a furnished apartment with all of their needs met. His wife and children were aware of this. In fact, he treated his family poorly. Phyllis's mother suffered from profound depression and was unable to properly care for her children. This was her father's excuse for cheating and not being at home. But of course, poor guy. Phyllis lost her twin sister in infancy and nearly died herself from scarlet fever. She had a speech impediment until the age of seven and taught herself to read and write at the age of four so that she could communicate with people. At age 16, she wanted to go to the University of Chicago Rush Medical School. Her father admonished her for this and he refused to pay for it. He had more than enough money to do that. Um, But he was just, uh, you know, whatever. Phyllis, what, what, do you need, what do you need an education for? What, is, what does a woman think she's going to do going to medical school? That's a man's job, mm-hmm. you know. Sure. It, obviously, his disrespect for women was, you know, uh, far ranging because, you know, he had mistresses and, you know, uh, has cheated on his wife and all that other stuff. Uh, Phyllis was determined and she did whatever she could to fund her education. At an early age, she had gone through many hardships and from those she became resilient. Most medical schools would not allow women to attend. However, Rush opened its doors to women in 1901. And only six women were admitted at that time, had been um, gotten admission to the the program. 
and she graduated in 1916 at the top of her class, literally number one in her class over everybody else. Excellent. During her time in medical school, she was bullied and harassed. Attempts were made to push her out, but uh, she would not let that deter her in any way. Because of her academic prowess, she won an elite and envied internship to Phipps Clinic at John Hopkins under the tutelage of Adolf Meyer. Oh, Mr. Meyer. You know, the, her, the dean, just as an aside, went to her and said, I want you to step down from this position and give it to um, uh, a man because it's hurting their egos. A woman shouldn't get a position over top of it and you should do the right thing. That happened. They didn't even hide the fact. Right. You know, um, and she's like, no, I don't think so. I earned this. Yeah. So two other important female uh, physicians, Dr. Dorothy Reed and Dr. Florence Sabin, who had graduated way before her, had paved a path for women to attend the best medical school in the country. And they suffered many, many abuses, as did Greenacre, but even worse. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Adolf Meyer was feared by all who worked for him. People seemed to worship or despise him. He had a reputation of mentally castrating all who worked under him. Not surprisingly, he turned out to be one of the biggest cowards in psychiatric medicine, who cared more about his reputation than his patients and avoided confrontation with other strong personalities at any cost. Now, I spoke in the last episode about his accomplishments, and I can't take away what his accomplishments were, but the fact is, he, this guy was a real cowardly piece of shit. Greenacre found it very difficult to work with him and suffered herself through some depression and anxiety. Greenacre's future husband came on staff in her second year and they fell head over heels in love. They got engaged and Meyer was against it. He figured that she couldn't manage a husband and home and her studies. In the spring of 1920, they got married and Greenacre carried on with the same excellent work ethic and dedication. Meyer was relentless with his expectations, pushing his staff and students to the brink making them do reports and tests and studies over and over and over again. He emphasized the importance of psychology, physiology, neuropathology, and sociology, which did help them become better psychiatrists in the long run. Greenacre's husband, Richter, was made head of the psychobiology lab at Phipps Clinic. So both Greenacre and her husband worked practically around the clock, barely being at home in their tiny cramped apartment, rarely seeing each other. Somehow Phyllis got pregnant, <laughs> even though they were never home. I guess in one of those meetings, they bumped into each other. Strangers in the night. Yeah. <laughs> Exchanging rubbers. Glances. Get a bigger one. This one's too tight. There are others. So yeah, she got pregnant. And she was expected to give up her career, and she didn't. In fact, she was assigned twice the amount of work of any man and paid a pathetically low income. Greenacre tried many times over the years to get a raise, but Meyer would do nothing to help her. After the birth of her second child, things had gotten really bad at home, and her marriage was pretty much over. Oh, that's too bad. Well, I mean, unless her husband was a jerk. Her husband was a jerk. Oh, okay. Thought he was going to be one of the good guys for a change. Greenacre threatened to quit, and the administration didn't care, but Meyers did. So even though he was a piece of crap, he knew that he'd be losing a lot in Greenacre. He didn't want that to happen, so he actually tried to help her. So this is when Cotton comes into the picture. Cotton and Trent University were looking for someone to conduct a study on Cotton's methods, 
it was starting to like people were wanting to know more about it making sure it was above board that kind of stuff so he was pressured to do that cotton of course turned to meyer believing he would get a favorable endorsement now it would require great personal sacrifice on dr greenacre's part she would have to spend at least several days a week traveling between baltimore and new jersey for an extended period of time um and she'd be separated from her children and husband but when she took on the research study it tripled her salary what she soon discovered was horrific the decision to commission an outside assessment to investigate cotton's work was not popular at trenton they feared that they would have a negative outcome and would be it would look bad for the hospital duh why would they worry if they didn't think they were doing anything wrong? Hmm. Either way, they thought it would go nowhere. A favorable result would help, and an unfavorable result, uh, they would just bury. It would not leave the hospital. Right, because she's a woman. She doesn't know what she's talking about anyway, so... Yeah, exactly. They had it all worked out. It's a win-win for them, right? So the superintendent of Trenton Hospital, Raycroft, initiated the investigation um, as a preemptive strike. Okay. So they recruited one of their doctors, Dr. Paul McRae, who was resistant at first, but they coerced him into it because basically you don't do it and follow the rules, you no longer have a job. Um, Adolf Myers was asked to manage the investigation to oversee the study because Myers loved cotton. So, you know, he was like, okay, I'll do it. And so they chose him because they knew that he would cover their butts or they would just get, he would just give them a glowing um, reference. And they were going to keep it internal out of the public eye. Adolf Myers would ensure that. But, you know, why did they have to be so secretive and conniving if what they were doing was moral and ethical? Hmm. Adolf Myers assigned Dr. Greenacre to this task. So this is the, the study she was doing. And she agreed and um, Cotton assigned an assistant to her to help her go through all the numbers, probably thinking that, oh, well, she won't even notice, right? Well, this assistant, Mrs. Rue, was a former patient of his and had been placed in charge of all of his statistics. She had absolutely no training, no insight. All she wanted to do was please Dr. Cotton, and she manipulated even further the statistics to support um, Cotton's outrageous cures and rates. Now, I'm not saying someone with mental illness can't be intelligent, have a you know, an education and, and do a, a decent job, but you can't just put anyone in there and say, okay, you have to be a statistician. You have to know how to, how to put this together. So he's like, Hey, Miss Rook, get over here. Do you want to, you want to do something for me? And so she's like, yes, doctor. <laughs> it was so obvious to Dr. Greenacre that the numbers were a joke. Like it was pathetic. And even though the numbers were doctored no pun intended the numbers were still really bad it showed a 33 percent death rate a 43 percent no change and 24 percent recovery rate depending on what they'd call recovery so Khan was confident that everything would work in his favor now greenacre knew something was suspicious about dr cotton right away he was reasonably welcoming but he and he appeared somewhat calm but he was very fidgety and uneasy and she wondered about his mental stability well, i think she was onto something there mm-hmm. As opposed to the impression that Trenton ran an impeccable establishment, it was far from it. The building gave off a fetid and sour odor characteristic of mental hospitals at the time. It was There was dirt, decay, urine, vomit, feces, unwashed patients. 
and sickness that permeated every inch of the place. It was embedded in the floors and the walls and the ceilings and the furniture and everything. The patients were packed into overcrowded wards like sardines. Initially, Greenacre couldn't put her finger on what was so odd about the patients' faces and why they sounded so strange. So as bad as the place was, there was something more that was bothering her. And it was because they were all toothless. They had not been... Why are you laughing? Just picture these... I mean, I shouldn't laugh. Just I know. It's sometimes she... things are so outrageous that you don't know what else to do but just laugh. Just like but... this poor woman. She's like, why is everybody sounding? Hi, honey. Like, just no... Like, it's like when... Someone takes their, if they've dent, if you know someone has dentures and they take their dentures out. Yeah. They sound so different. It's just like. Well, yeah, you, your teeth helps, helps you make words. You know, we don't realize not, other than the fact that they help us chew and survive to masticate, you know, they also help us communicate. So, um, so like I said, she couldn't put her finger on what was so odd about the patient's faces and why they sounded so strange. And then she realized they were all toothless. They had not been given dentures. Their faces were sunken in. They slurred and drooled and looked years and years older than they were. And they weren't drooling because they were like, oh, like they were, uh, you know, uh, medicated or something like that. It was like they were drooling because they were probably after the surgery, the surgeries were probably done in a a way that there was nerve damage because they just yanked them out. Right. And like, who knows the kind of damage they would have done uh, to these poor people. And uh, they were thin and malnourished because how could they properly eat? And in those days, you were given like hard bread. And if you were lucky, a piece of, of mutton or something like that. How do you chew that? Like you just can't. So you're either putting swallowing pieces down or, you know, gumming it to death. Furthermore, Cotton took Greenacre to where she would be staying while she was at Trenton. So you think, oh, she'd have a nice room maybe on the premises. Oh, no. Uh, Her sleeping accommodation was in a tiny converted closet in the prison for the criminally insane. So there was a building at the back where the worst criminally insane, most notorious, horrible, I'm going to say again, criminals were. And he put her in a converted closet. What? Yeah. Like, so they were, was this a closed? Like it was closed down? No, it was full of patients. So he's like, this is where you're going to stay and you're going to stay in a closet, a converted closet. And she, and she knew what he was doing. She's like, okay, then this is where I stay, I guess. And it was such a, you know, how juvenile is that? Like how, how was he even able to do that? Like, cause he could, he had all power, right? So his juvenile attempt at discouraging Greenacre from doing the study was so transparent to her. She didn't even, she didn't let it stop her. Sure, it bothered her, but like there were notes that said that she would hear like screaming and rattling and fighting and like the worst stuff while she was in her, her, her closet trying to sleep or do work. So can you imagine trying to fall asleep to that lullaby? Get over here. I'm going to teach you a lesson. Like, I mean terrible so when greenacre went through the statistics as compiled by mrs rue she saw that they were totally unusable there was nothing that could be salvaged it was clear to her that she had was told to compile compile stats in a very specific way that of course were favorable to cotton it was what she was like i said taught to do now i can go into detail about how bad it was but honestly there there isn't a point it just be taking up too much time but leads lead us to say like this was 
it was laughable. It was that bad. At the end of the day, Greenacre would have to do it herself from scratch. She would meticulously go through each case. So she picked out a period of time, I believe, from 1920 to 1925, because she was there in 1925, and went through everything. Um, it was a huge undertaking, and she had no assistance that she could rely on. How could she rely on Mrs. Rue? But he did offer some more assistance, though. He said he had two highly qualified social um, workers that would help. But they were also patients of his. <laughs> so she how he employs former patients. Yeah. What so was their training? Yeah. Well, they were here for long enough. Yeah, exactly. You know um, things run. I guess the surgery worked well on them. So they could uh, get get a job, get in gainful employment. So she's like, yeah, no, I, I don't think so. Sure, Doctor Lobotomy wasn't there to. Oh, he came years later. Okay. <laughs> So Cotton was like, okay, whatever you want. And he happily went along fully expecting a favorable review. Like, could you see this guy walking down the halls being like, doo-be-doo-be-doo. Yep, she's going to give me a great review. Like, he ha he was clueless. Like, completely clueless. Just cocky to no end. Yeah, yeah. And he even complimented Greenacre on her diligence and hard work, which is very interesting when you're going to hear in the future. So while combing through each and every file, she found more and more disturbing evidence that something was very wrong and diabolical. Um, for instance, there was a patient by the name of Stella Norris, uh, as they say it, a manic depressive, who had had a colectomy on September 20th, 1921. So after the colectomy, she had post-operative pain, abdominal pain and diarrhea for weeks, of course, because when you remove the colon, that's where stool is formed, you're going to have diarrhea. It's mm. never going to stop. Um, and you're going to be malnourished because instead of the small intestine pulling the nutrients out, it's just sort of being dumped, right? So, I mean, of course they're going to be mal malnourished as well. So she seemed to bounce back for a little bit there. Um, but then out of nowhere, she started to lose a, a significant amount of weight and her wound reopened, and she actually died on December the 22nd. And this is what Cotton said. He deemed this as a success story. So this went down as a check on success side. So it makes you wonder, like, what like what he deemed a success. There's no way any one of these is a success, but this is what he said, quote, Mentally, there is some improvement. She can be made to smile, and conversation is less irrelevant, and she does not dwell on her condition. I don't know. Maybe because she was fucking dying. Right. But that's too, a success. Too so weak to, too weak to protest. I love a, she can be made to smile. Well, how do you make someone smile? I don't even want to know about that. And conversation is less irrelevant. And how does he determine relevancy? Anyway, I mean, uh, that that's just a deep hole we can't go into, but, uh, Ah, and you know, I, I don't see how those are really any improvements. And what is what did he determine as an improvement? Well, just because someone's smart, you can be made to smile. It's like maybe uh, she was uh, grimacing in pain. I was gonna say maybe she was smiling, like please don't remove any more. Yeah, of my bits. Exactly. <laughs> and then there was another patient, Julia Thompson. Um, no age was given except for that she was a young woman. She was admitted on September eleventh, nineteen twenty-two. And two days after admission, two days, they removed all of her teeth and tonsils. Uh, nine days, like, how can you do a proper assessment? You can just see he's like, in, take him out. Like, there was no method. 
uh, behind his madness, no pun intended. So nine days later, he he did a total colectomy. He removed all of her large bowel. For six weeks, she had a fever from 100 to 102. And so over the next month to treat that, he injected her with vaccines. The first vaccine was streptococcus mitis, which is the mouth crap that we have, you know, mouth bacteria. And then he injected her with colon streptococcus. Those vaccines are going to work really well. How are those vaccines? Uh, well, I guess sometimes, you know, with, you know, we put vaccines are, you know, a, a, a dormant virus or, or a dormant bacteria that's put in it. But this wasn't dormant. This was just like, oh, this this will fix it. I don't think he even thought that. I think he was experimenting. She was discharged as cured. And what was his definition definition for her to be discharged as cured? Showed some more interest in her surroundings. That was her cure. Yeah, she was probably like, get me the fuck out of this place. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the door? Where's the window? Start the car. Um, her mom died eight months later and she went into a depression. Uh, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Morning. Yeah. And she was taken back, Natural. literally kicking and screaming to Trenton. Um, and all the way to the operating room. She, and so by the fact, so the fact that she was kicking and screaming, refusing to go back and then also refusing to have surgery, that was their proof of her insanity. Like, they could pull insanity out of anything. So she had a laparotomy and a colostomy. She died nine days later from post-op peritonitis. So, and this is just one of hundreds of cases. So Greenacre was horrified. Wait, but that was a success, wasn't it? Although that was one of the success ones, right? Both died, you know, but uh, yeah. So Greenacre was horrified, especially because it was just two out of uh, the cases that she was going over. Greenacre wanted to follow up with uh, discharge patients and family members of patients in, that had been to Trenton. She drove all over New Jersey to find these people. Some were out of state and some she just couldn't find. Um, some were so far hidden in the back wards of Trenton that they didn't know that she didn't even know that they were there. Some people didn't even know they were there. They were like the forgotten people. She visited the wards frequently and was outraged by what she found. As I had said earlier, uh, all the all the things that uh, she encountered when she first got there, but also the terrible abuse of the patients by the brutal staff and the parade of patients getting surgery, like literally just standing in line one after another getting surgery. Cotton and his assistant, Dr. Storr, ignored all of this and spoke of their great achievements. So I have a, a story that I'm going to read to you from the from the book that I got some of this information from. It's called Madhouse, A Tragic Tale of Megalomania and Modern Medicine by Andrew Skull. And I'm just going to read the story of or a story of one of the cases she went to go visit. One of the this patient is supposed to be a cured patient of his. OK, you ready for this? I'm ready. As Erica would say, give it to me. Just close your eyes, everybody, and yes, it's story time. Picture this. There were even more bizarre visits. She found herself trapped in the presence of the clinically crazy. There was a time in early March, for instance, when Greenacre arrived at an isolated cottage on a farm outside of Haddonfield to interview Alice Stevens, a middle-aged woman that the hospital records indicated had been released and subsequently found improved after a tonsillectomy and an extensive course of vaccine therapy. 
Much knocking eventually brought a white-haired, amply-built woman to the door in an old and very dirty dress that gaped badly, disclosing unpleasant glimpses of filthy underwear. After some delay, Alice admitted her to a disorderly and dirty living room, where the other occupant, a peculiar-appearing, angular, gaunt woman, promptly fled upstairs. Minutes later, still another figure stole downstairs, a tall girl with irregularly shorn hair, a hopelessly dilapidated appearance, shoes unlaced, clothing soiled, and stocking hanging loosely around one ankle. Alice grimaced and introduced her as her daughter Rebecca and another former Trenton patient. The girl grinned repulsively. <laughs> Sorry, the way you're... Oh, this is the way it's written. The girl grinned repulsively and went silently back upstairs. By this time, a few minutes of conversation had convinced Greenacre that both women were actively hallucinating and quite thoroughly mad. And given the oppressive atmosphere of the place, she longed desperately to leave. Alice, however, would have none of it, insisting on showing her the rest of the house. Everywhere there was dirt and disorder, dirty dishes, dirty tablecloth, filthy floors, piles of discarded clothes. And upstairs, they once more encountered the gaunt, awkward woman who had fled when Greenacre first arrived. Introduced by Alice on this occasion as my boarder, Mrs. Wilson, who slept in the upstairs hallway, she too was evidently psychotic. Now somewhat alarmed, Greenacre steered her particular hostess back downstairs and sought somewhat desperately to make her exit. Alice Stevens was visibly distressed by the thought. Couldn't she stay? They could talk about books or about her son, a Rhodes Scholar who was off to Oxford. Greenacre could share their supper. Surely she did not want to leave just yet. Making her excuses as best she could and edging towards the door, Greenacre grew even more alarmed when she discovered that it was bolted and barred from the outside. Mr. Stevens, who had apparently still been home when she arrived, had chosen to use their time upstairs to leave for his job across the Delaware, and as was custom, he locked the three lunatic ladies in for the day. Once she realized what had happened, even Greenacre began to lose her equanimity. Recalling the scene some six decades later, she remembered some panic-stricken moments as she wondered whether she was destined to remain trapped in this house of pathology for several hours more. Was she personally at risk, locked up with these three seriously psychotic women? On the contrary, it turned out her hostess found the whole situation rather amusing, and after reeling, trying herself to open the door, offered to help Greenacre effect her escape. Her first plan was to push a door out the window and for the doctor to lower herself out on it. By contemplating the six to eight foot drop that still remained, her guest suggested to exit via the cellar that might be, prefer be preferable. Treating the whole thing as an elaborate game, Alice gravely escorted her downstairs and watched while her elegantly dressed visitor clambered over a pile of coal, squeezed through the narrow opening, emerging on all fours with a blackened and somewhat torn dress and dented dignity, but otherwise safe and sound. Oh my goodness. So this is one of her... So there's no way that you can say this woman wasn't getting down and dirty trying to get to the bottom of all this stuff. And this is what was considered one of his uh, success stories. It goes on to say that all those women were uh, patients of Dr. Cotton at Trenton. So Dr. Goodacre basically, like you said, was literally <laughs> crawling through filth and dirt to get the dirt on him. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> moving forward, Dr. Greenacre's study was completed after 10 months. Her conclusion, as she suspected from the very beginning, was, quote, 
hopelessly wrong-headed and profoundly damaging, and she was determined to leave no room for debate on the subject. Quote, end of quote. Throughout the study, Greenacre had sent reports after report to Cotton about her findings, and he seemed oblivious to the conclusions. He clearly wasn't reading them because he carried on as before, showing no sign of concern, and he was even more delusional than his patients. During this time, Senator William Bright of New Jersey launched an investigation on Trenton. The budget for Trenton was enormous, and he sought to find out why. He was also hearing some horrific stories leaking out of Trenton. Cotton went on the defensive to, to discredit the Bright Committee, as it was called. So what they uncovered was very disturbing, and Cotton was fighting for his career. So Cotton was shocked. He couldn't believe it. He had no clue that they were going to dig so deep and, and do this. Witnesses were brought in in front of the committee to testify against Cotton. Former employees and ex-patients testifying about the brutality, forced and botched surgery, debility, and death. Cotton couldn't handle it. His blood pressure rose and he was having panic attacks. Like he lost his mind. They recessed for a couple of weeks during this time. Within 48 hours, two... Okay, so they recessed for the weekend. During the time that they recessed, Within 48 hours, two patients were beaten to death at Trenton. And one of them was the mother of the family that had testified against Cotton that very week. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. So wait, the patient that was beaten to death was the mother? Of the daughter that was testifying against Cotton. The daughter that was testifying against Cotton. Yeah. What a quinky dink. Yeah. But the fact she was the unknown beating death. So trying to say the conditions are just fine there, but two were beaten over the weekend. When he appeared in front of the committee that Wednesday, following the deaths over the weekend, he was mentally unstable. Like he was completely unhinged. Like many psychopaths do when, you know, brought um, up in front or against their own crimes. After that, Trenton Board of Supervisors hid, sent Cotton away so that no one could reach him. He would not be able to testify further um, because he was having health problems. How convenient. Meanwhile, the staff at Trenton went unchecked and carried on with the surgeries and brutalities. This all took place in July 1925, so this is when he went away. In September, Cotton was still recuperating in a luxury spa. Meyer had been away since the late spring and didn't know what had been going on. When he returned in September, he was shocked. And worse, the Bright community had heard about Greenacre's study and wanted a copy of it. Greenacre said it was ready to be handed over for them to review. In fact, Raycroft had asked for a copy to give to the committee himself. This arrogant, bloody fool, Raycroft and Cotton, thought that the report would give them a glowing review about how great things were going at Trenton. They clearly hadn't read it. They just expected it to be amazing. Right. Well, Raycroft was the superintendent? Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, so he was Cotton's buddy. Meyer summoned Greenacre to his office and he told her what to say in court um, and that the report would not be released. So she was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, after all this... After everything she went through. And he's finally being called on the carpet, I'm not allowed to release it. So Myers told Raycroft that maybe the report would not be too helpful. Um, so Meyer found a loophole. He said he couldn't send it to the committee because it wasn't finished and signed off by Cotton. Until it was reviewed and signed off by Cotton, they couldn't have it. Cotton was never going to sign off on this. Mm. 
ever. So Greenacre was justifiably upset and she did not feel great about covering this up. And she felt very disrespected by Meyer. Meyer ensured that Trenton would be protected and he showed little to no concern for the patients, but a lot of concern for Cotton and himself. When, Gray when Raycroft was called to stand at trial, he dismissed all the accusations as disgruntled employees or crazy people because, you know, how can you trust anything they say? And he put a great emphasis on the supposed money that he saved the state from all of the cures. So even though they dumped unbelievable amounts of money, they're saying, look it, I saved you that much and more by cures that didn't exist. I guess if you want to call death cures. The New York Times even gave a glowing review on Cotton's work. Raycroft and Trenton had a prominent doctor and Cotton ally to testify on his behalf. He gave it his seal of approval, praising all aspects of Cotton's treatment of Trenton's patients and his remarkable cures. So this is a Dr. Copeland, that's who he was. And this is what he said, quote, the state may well be proud of the hospital. I've never seen an institution conducted in a better way. There is every consideration given through the latest medical methods, and we should commend its work in every way possible. End of quote. So Copeland's testimony divided the Bright Committee. And without a united front, everything fell apart. The investigated ended and Cotton got off scot-free. So can you imagine? They had all the evidence that was needed and they had all the people they needed to condemn him. And they sent him away to a spa because he was so mentally unstable. And he got, he got off. No problem. Should have put him in his own hospital. Yeah, exactly. Maybe he needed a few uh, things extracted. Exactly. <laughs> Take out some of his teeth and stuff. So the members of this committee had to be willfully ignorant, gullible, or corrupt, or maybe all of them, to believe all the piles of horseshit that were shoved at them. The patients were clearly not important. And um, they should have carried on with this investigation further, but they didn't. They just dropped it. Remember when I talked about before when some of the worst doctors out there had many different times where they could have been, like, busted? Right. And they just carried on or moved on. Yeah. This is clearly one of the biggest ones. So while Cotton was cowardly hiding out at a spa, Raycroft, Meyer, Copeland, and his other cronies fought his battles and won for him. Cotton was completely out of touch with reality. He was paranoid, erratic, and delusional. He still wanted a copy of Greenacre's report, not only to exonerate him, he still thought it would be good, that his cure was as miraculous as he bragged. Mayer said that he wanted to discuss the report with Cotton in person. He invited him to visit him and stay with him for a couple days to discuss it at his house. So Cotton Lee readily agreed about it. Um, but he said, I won't go until I'm feeling better. So he finally made it there on January 14th. He left in July and the poor, poor man still was sick until January. So during this time, Meyer trying to get cotton to finally go he just like coddled him and pet him and babied him you know and and just said oh don't worry and no you're excellent at your job so like it just he was just oh it was just pathetic so why would meyer protect cotton because his reputation was on the line because a bully is often easily bullied when they're confronted and cotton was his protege so if he, if it got out that Cotton was a criminal maniac, it would irreversibly 
damage his reputation. So he was just protecting his own butt, as you said. CYA. Yep. So Meyer, yeah. So Meyer was implicit in the continued mutilation, abuse, and murder of the patients at Trenton. At some point, it must have dawned on Cotton that Greenacre's report might not be as favorable for him. So he continued to hide in seclusion at the spa. And Meyer kept trying to get Cotton to agree to a date, and he kept coming up with excuses to put it off over and over. He was a complete coward. Instead of showing frustration, Meyer continued to be patient with Cotton. On Thursday, January the 14th, they actually met. Cotton was to stay with Meyer for a few days, and Meyer set it up as a friendly get-together. When Cotton arrived, he was greeted by both Meyer and Greenacre. Cotton appeared calm and cool and collected, while Meyer's was very nervous and fidgety. you think it would be the other way around. And Greenacre was surprised by this. She's like, what's the deal? Like, He's delusional. Yeah. So, well, one's a coward and one's delusional. Mm-hmm. So Meyer left Greenacre to discuss the report. He just sat back and said nothing. He threw her under the bus. Once she got started with the truth, Cotton became belligerent and verbally abusive. Greenacre stood strong, though, and didn't back down even from the worst abuses um, he threw at her. You can imagine some of the terrible things he would say. Meyer, visibly uncomfortable, sat back, took notes, and said very little. He didn't support or defend Greenacre. If Cotton thought he could intimidate Greenacre, he was wrong. And that got him even more angry. She reviewed all the cases from 1920 to 1925. It showed that his 85% recovery rate was actually only 20%. And out of those, how much was actually a cure? Oh, I got the numbers reversed. That was Oh, that's what it was. Honest mistake. Yeah. 80, 20, yeah, 20, 80. Whatever, you know. yeah. Or just a discharge. Or, or, or So how much were there actually a cure or just a discharge of someone terrified into compliance? They went on this, like, they did this for hours and hours and Cotton slammed all the data she presented point by point, She, but he just couldn't get around it. Then he started cherry picking each point, and then he used distraction techniques and then started to move the goalposts as we know people will do when they're cornered, and they refused to back down. When all else failed, he had an out-and-out temper tantrum. His anger was so much that at times he was incoherent and irrational. The meeting ended with them getting nowhere. And that he said all of her data meant nothing. The biggest problem, like, that her data meant nothing. But, so why all the, the temper tantrums and because freaking out? Because you can't trust, you know, a female doctor who graduated top of her class over, yeah. you know, ex-mental patients that have no training in <laughs> data collection and statistics. Clearly. Come on. The, the, the biggest problem for him was that he was up against a woman. And he just would, that wouldn't do. And he made that very clear. They met again on Saturday the 16th. Like, he didn't even hide it. There wasn't none of this, oh, it's not because she's a woman thing. It's like, no, it's because she's a woman. (laughs) So when they met on Saturday, the same thing happened. It ended with Cotton stomping around like a toddler and leaving and slamming the door, not saying goodbye. They were to meet on the following Monday, but it never happened. Cotton continuously had an excuse why he couldn't make it. But it was getting around that there was a report on the goings-on at Trenton. Greenacre asked when it would be published. And Meyer said it couldn't be published until Cotton signed off on it. So you really think he's going to, like, that's his, clearly, Myers knew it wouldn't get signed off. Therefore, that's how he's going to bury it. That was his little loophole. Right. 
Meyer told anyone who asked for it that it wasn't complete and a lie, of course. So that was his two things. Oh, it's not done when it was done and Cotton's got to sign off of it, which he never would. So uh, he was going to do his best to continually uh, bury this report. So to summarize this from Greenacre's point of view, uh, eight years of experimentation that had produced hundreds of deaths and thousands of mangled bodies um, should now be put to an end. And that wouldn't happen. Even though Myers knew that what Cotton was doing was not working at the very least, his patients were being mutilated and murdered. He tried to appeal to Cotton, but he would ignore him, blow him off, or explode in regards to Greenacre. Meyer apologized for having her involved. Well, he was the one that suggested it. I, I hate Meyer. I don't know who I hate more. That's so disappointing. Meyer even tried to go through Cotton's wife. Like, that was going to work. She 100% stood by her man, and there was no hope there. Cotton hired his own guys to assess the outcome. So, again, he brings in his own people to... Were they ex-patients too? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> to dispute her stuff again. But when time came to publish the report, he refused to show the numbers. He was like, yeah, no, I did it. Show the numbers. No, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me of, of Trump and his uh, tax records. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll show them to you, but not the numbers. You know. Was it uh, the Looney Tunes actuary company or something yeah. that he hired? <laughs> I'm sorry. That was wrong. Oh, my God. Okay. Now, a year had gone by. The murders and the mutilations carried on as before. Meyer gently and lovingly tried to coax Cotton to see things their way. In fact, he was more determined than ever to prove Greenacre wrong. He was on a witch hunt for her. Raycroft and Meyer preferred to spare Cotton's feelings rather than save the patients from this madman. In fact, they were both very concerned about his health. The fragile baby that he was, they needed to, you know, protect him. Three years after Cotton was rightfully called out in the carpet for his crimes, he came out smelling like a rose. But as Outcast would say, Roses really smell like poo, poo, poo. Poo, poo, poo. Exactly. Love that song. <laughs> I know you like to thank your shit don't stank. I love this. I love that song. <laughs> Greenacre was devastated. Meyer had betrayed her, thrown her under the bus, and allowed her to be abused and discredited. Meyer showed his true colors as the coward that he was. After all of this, not only did Cotton carry on as usual at Trenton, he was invited as a keynote speaker at the British Medical Association at Medical Psychological Association in Edinburgh in July 1928. Remember, he had been there and before. They love him in Great Britain. Yeah, so he went back and he was like, I'm strutting my stuff, y'all. Like he was all like, all right. The top doctors in England loved Cotton. They had no idea what was going on in the U.S. And Cotton, Cotton, and Cotton, and Cotton was soaking up all the adoration. He found himself among friends who saw him as a brave pioneer. They embraced his theories and lauded his breakthroughs. He was meeting a bunch of doctors who were as big a quacks as he was. Cotton met and spent the majority of his time with Thomas Chivers Graves, the guy that he had met the first time around his buddy from his last visit. Like I'd mentioned in the last episode, he, or as I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, he was pretty much the British cotton. He had the same setup. So this time around, he had gone around and hired the staff, got the operating rooms and facilities. And so he pretty much had the same setup. 
He performed the same surgeries with the same delusions and arrogance. They were kindred spirits from hell. So that's what Chivers basically was like. He did everything. He did the same stuff. Like he said, his, his setup the same as Cotton. Yeah, so Cotton went and presented it, and Graves went and, and, and followed through with it. Here's how you become a megalomaniac. <laughs> exactly. Um, so they wandered through the wards of Hollymore together, egging each other on. Graves came up with a new procedure on his own that Cotton readily adopted and inflicted upon his Trenton patients. So he's... So Graves like, here, I've got one for you. Why don't you try this? Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> the treatment was, you ready for this? I'm ready. The treatment was, it just makes my Give head hurt to think about it. Give it to me. The treatment was to treat focal infection of the ethmoid and sphenoid sinuses by puncturing a hole through them to see if pus would come out. Well, they are... Yeah, it sounds like So a... let's puncture them. So no pus came out. I guess they're fine. Pus comes out. I guess they have an infection. Like puncturing the sinuses? <laughs> oh my god. Um, the other technique that took Cotton back to Tretton as well was the removal of teeth without anesthetic. Graves what? is like, you don't need anesthetic. So now Cotton was now pulling teeth without anesthetic. Another discussion they had and agreed about was septic heredity. That's right. You passed on the same infection generation to generation and therefore got mental illness. That's right. Uncle Joe's cold from 1642 had been passed on to 1932 and would continue on accordingly on and on. Wait, so you're saying like like literally through DNA, like... They pass the cold on, or the virus, or the so focal the, sepsis. The infection of some sort. Yeah, that, right. that really makes sense, doesn't it? Graves and Cotton presented their focal sepsis miracles to the doctors and administrators at the esteemed conference. The audience laughed it up with only a few detractors, who were dismissed as being jealous and old school. Of course. It's not just that the guy is psycho. No. On August 14th, he returned to New Jersey with renewed vigor. All the nonsense with Greenacre and the Bright Committee investigation, a distant memory. Cotton now believed more than ever that he was God's gift to psychiatry with his miraculous cures that he would bestow even more aggressively and maniacally on the patients of Trenton. Are any of you wondering what was going on with our heroine, Dr. Greenacre? I know that I I took some great interest in her, so I, I thought I'd follow up a bit here. Even though Cotton mostly put his past behind him, he could not get past his hate for Dr. Greenacre. He was concerned that this meddlesome and malevolent woman would still hurt his image. He went full force through Meyer to make her go away. Meyer was torn, but not for long. Because when he saw an opening to fire Greenacre, he took it. For what? Here's how. Greenacre was already feeling deeply betrayed by Meyer and was further devastated uh, by the behavior of her husband. He was cheating on her. His reason was because she worked and wouldn't tend to his needs. Poor baby. So this was brought to Meyer. Yeah. This was brought to Meyer. In the past, staff who were caught cheating were fired. They wouldn't have that discrediting their program. And Meyer would not tolerate this behavior, except this time. Wait, so her husband was on staff with Meyer? Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, okay. They, as I said earlier. On. Yeah, but he didn't fire him this time. He fired her. Oh, my God. He pushed Dr. Greenacre out. And he helped her get a job as a staff psychiatrist with the juvenile court system. Dr. Greenacre went on to have a long career as a prominent and highly respected psychiatrist and a true pioneer um, in the treatment of children and helped pave the way for other women in medicine. So she went through so much. Like you can't even imagine. Like we talk about it and we can't even begin to imagine what she went through. And at the end of it all, she gets fired because her husband was cheating. But it really was because little poor little Cotton was having a temper tantrum. But she went on to become like she died, I think, in nineteen seventy. But oh, she wow. was yeah. Long. But but she really became like the, her name is synonymous with like some of the best women doctors and uh, who paved the the ground for, Definitely for women. Have to do a little episode or mini episode on her. Mm-hmm. Now back to Cotton. The surgeries and the treatments that he was inflicting were getting more and more bizarre and brutal. He was hacking and slashing his innocent victims with an obsession. However, his position as medical director at Trenton was about to come to an end because of his murders and his mutilations, his torture and degradation. No, because of money. He was double dipping. He was making a salary at Trenton and running his own private clinic. Was he disgraced? No. After 23 years, he was retired with the position of medical director emeritus and made director of research. He was praised for his work and hailed as a hero. He told everyone, including Meyer, that he had retired and that it was his idea. All right. So it so kind of reminds me of Al Capone getting caught for tax evasion. It's like, no, just ignore all that other really horrible stuff that they did. But, you know, it's about money, right? Yeah. When it comes to money, you're out. Yeah, exactly. Or you didn't pay your taxes. <laughs> Assistants of Meyer's and from outside of Trenton began to study Cotton's reign of terror. Everything that Greenacre had uncovered was confirmed, as well as the increasing barbarity um, that had, you know, throughout the years and afterwards. Cotton's replacement slowly stopped the practice of performing surgeries on patients for focal sepsis. They were entering a new age of experiments and treatments that would terrorize and abuse helpless and marginalized non-people with mental illness, like lobotomies and water therapy and ice baths and insulin, insulin therapy, metrazole therapy, and so on and so forth. Cotton's reign of terror ended abruptly on May 8, 1933, when he suddenly dropped dead of a heart attack at the age of 56. He was hailed as a hero and courageous, a doctor who changed the face of psychiatry. Here's a quote from Meyer in regards to his life. It was a remarkable and noble life, and then for it to end like a soldier in action. Give me a break. He called him a man of action and results. If the action was to murder and mutilate and the results were to kill, yeah, that's great. He was. And just to leave you guys feeling really great about this story. God, now what? Actually, wait a second. I'm going to just tell a couple more things here. Meyer. How did it end for Meyer? Meyer went on to support other maniacs like Dr. Walter Freeman. Oh, no, seriously. So he went throughout his career supporting the worst of the worst. And sadly, both of um, Cotton's sons committed suicide. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. Did he take out their teeth, too? Yeah. And tonsils. So he, like, basically experimented on his own children. Yeah, like his kids at very young age were toothless. 
tonsillus. Okay, so just to add insult to injury to end this case. What is even more infuriating is that Mrs. Cotton had provided an endowment to go to the doctor who was the most compassionate and caring towards patients. It was called the Cotton Award for Kindness. Speechless. Yeah, I am. I am. So that was his wife? His wife put an endowment together for the the kindest doctor each year, the... um, Cotton Award for Kindness. So it was like a like an endowment or yeah, yeah. like a scholarship. Almost. Yeah, or okay. just money or whatever. Okay, bursary yeah. or something like so that. Yeah, so he, I won the award for the Cotton Award of, uh, of Kindness. <laughs> so that's it. That's the end of it. She couldn't stand anymore, this man. I'm telling you. She'd just be like reading and writing and doing her research, and I'd look over and she'd be like, I hate this guy. Shaking her head, mumbling under her breath. That's really stressing me out. I wonder sometimes why it takes me a long time in between putting out episodes, and I want to be able to shorten that time. But there's, I really dive deep into this stuff, and then I have to like filter out so much stuff because of I kept it all in. I well, I probably have an aneurysm to be honest with you, <laughs> and I don't want to bore you guys. But my God, by the time the end of writing this, it just it's a lot of work. Um, I'm gonna try to put them out more frequently. I've got some new and exciting, cool stuff coming up for you Yay. guys that I'm gonna keep a secret for now. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see that up in the next couple of weeks. But uh, I'm done with Cotton, and I'm pretty sure you guys are probably done with him too. So. Thank you for joining me today, joining us today, talking about this monster. Um, if you have any questions or comments, uh, email me or join the Facebook group or just let's bring it up on the Facebook group. And I just want to thank everybody for listening and participating and being there. So please take care of yourselves. Wear your mask, wash your hands, or you're probably doing it. So I don't know, pass it on and just, uh, be kind to yourself, take care of yourself, and uh, love yourself. Love yourself. Yep. Peace. Wow. It gets nothing realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out. Yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in. Learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable. Yeah. Subscribe. Make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat.